sticker in my mic. There we go. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 20. I invite you uh, who are at home, if you're having to watch on Zoom, to do this as well. We, we love God's Word. We want to learn from God's Word. I do not try to just make things up and teach them to you. I want to show you them from God's Word. So Exodus chapter 20. And, and I just want to begin by saying, as you're turning there, if there was ever any question in your mind, the Ten Commandments matter for you. Yes, the Ten Commandments that, that, you know, maybe on the schoolhouse walls or the courthouse walls, maybe the Ten Commandments that you learned as a little kid, they matter for you and they matter for me right here, right now, today. We saw this last week, I, you know, we, we studied just the introduction to the Ten Commandments last week, but we saw first that God went to great lengths to make sure that Israel and we recognize the significance of the Ten Commandments. Uh, I don't know if you remember, you know, the, the whole uh, Mount Sinai is, is wrapped in cloud and thunders and lightnings and trumpet blasts start coming out. That's, that's a, a, you know, that would be a new one for me if I heard a trumpet blasting out of a mountain. Uh, then God's presence becomes manifest in fire and smoke going up. And so then God speaks to the people of Israel audibly. I mean, we talked about how big of a deal that was, that God spoke not to a mediator, but to the whole congregation. And what does God say? He gives them the Ten Commandments. So God made sure we recognized that the Ten Commandments were significant. We also saw that the Ten Commandments were central. If, if you want to live a life of obedience to God, if you want to live a life that pleases God, if you want to live a life that leads to your greatest joy, the Ten Commandments are going to be uh, uh, central to obeying all other commands. They are given in such a way that every other command can find its root in the Ten Commandments. And so if you desire obedience to please God, then the Ten Commandments is, is something that we need to be very familiar with and, and made its way into our hearts. But one thing I want to make sure that we really understand, and I, I hope I pound this every week that we study the Ten Commandments, is God gave the Ten Commandments not for our salvation, but for our satisfaction. And part of that is, is the Ten Commandments reveal God's holy standard in the fact that none of us can keep that standard. In fact, I would say none of us can keep any one of the Ten Commandments perfectly from the heart. Not a single one. And, and so what that does for us is it, it reveals our failure and it takes our eyes off of ourselves and it puts them on our Savior, Jesus Christ, who did perfectly keep all of God's commands, both outwardly and inwardly. He did that for all of his life. Then on the cross, Jesus bore the punishment for our failure, for our disobedience. And so what happens, uh, you know, he, he rose from the dead, defeating all that sin. And what happens is we put our faith in Jesus and we receive that forgiveness. But we not only receive that forgiveness, we receive his righteousness. It is as though we have perfectly fulfilled the Ten Commandments in the eyes of God. And so we stand loved, accepted, redeemed, 
perfect in Christ. And so I don't, I don't want anyone to walk away and say, if I want God to love me, then I need to obey the Ten Commandments. No, no, no. God has already loved you in spite of your failing the Ten Commandments. And he has loved you in Christ Jesus who kept the Ten Commandments and has now given you that record. And so we obey the Ten Commandments from a satisfaction in Christ. And then we pursue experiencing more of that satisfaction through practical obedience to God. So just because we stand, you know, with the, the, the verdict not guilty doesn't mean we then just go continue uh, continuing in the crime. No, we, we want to walk in obedience, pursuing God and pursuing our satisfaction in him. And so that is why we seek to obey the Ten Commandments. That is why we want to know the Ten Commandments is, is not to gain God's acceptance or love, but because we are already accepted and loved. And God has opened the door to us experiencing him in full, but that will not happen practically in our lives apart from walking in obedience to him. And so this is the Ten Commandments. This is what we get to study today. And so I'm going to, uh, again, come in a word of prayer because we are just entirely incapable of learning these things at a heart level without our great God. So let's turn to him in prayer before we go any further. Father God, blast a trumpet in our, in our minds right now, just like you did for Israel from that mountain to get our attention right now. We, we all have our lives. We have different things going on, different joys, different sorrows. Right now, God, we want to pay attention to you and what you have to say from your word. And God, give us a love for you and a desire to walk in obedience to you not to earn your love, but because you have loved us so wondrously and so fully, Lord, we do want to experience that love and we want to spread that love to the world around us. So help us to understand these commands and help us to be people who walk in obedience to them. Not just knowing them as, as little rules, but as a way of life. Lord, I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today we are going to look at the first and second of the Ten Commandments. And so you can follow along with me. I think I'm already not working again. Can I get someone in the, the booth? Thank you, Douglas. I appreciate it. He's got me. Appreciate it. So if you can go ahead and look in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, we're going to read along <clears throat> verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so now he's going to begin to give the commands. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or, is that in, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
That, that is God's word. That is what God said after the, 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 the mountain was filled with smoke and fire and trumpets blasting. This is what God wanted to say. This is what he wanted us to hear. And we saw here, he'll give eight more commands, but we've now seen the first and second command, and they are precious. The, the more I study these, the more I meditate on these, the more I pray through these two commands, I see how precious they really are and how vital they are to mine and your life. And so I want us to take a closer look. Last week, we already looked at the first of the Ten Commandments, but because it is so important, have no other gods before me because it's so important, <clears throat> excuse me, I want us to look at it again and make sure we really understand it. So that first commandment is there in verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. And again, I cannot overstate the importance of this command. If the 10 commandments are central, this is the foundation of the central 10 commandments, okay? This is the, the starting point of everything else. You shall have no other gods before me. And, and, and what I want to show you today is that the essence of that command is this. This is uh, in your bulletin if you like to follow along there. Do not replace God. Do not replace God. This is the, the essence of what's going on here. Don't, don't exchange God for other gods. And I would even say this. Do not supplement God with other gods. See, see, God sits on, rightly, sits on the throne of the universe. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw it, that the train of God's robe fills the temple. And we're, we're just talking about like God's feet are there and it's just filling the, the, whole, the whole temple. And even that is just a, 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 what you might call a theophany, even though it happened in a vision. It's just a small picture of an infinite God. And he's saying, don't exchange me. Don't add to me. While I sit on the throne of the universe and I, I am there and nothing could ever change that, I also want to sit on the throne of your heart. Do you get that? He, he's enthroned. We don't have to worry about that. He is king, ruler of the universe, Lord of glory, but he wants to be those things in our hearts. And therefore he says, have no other gods before me. And that means nothing higher than me and nothing even equal with me. We don't try to set other gods on his throne. He will not cohabit that throne in our hearts. Now you think about this, uh, for Israel, this was a very real command. It was not hypothetical. It was not theoretical. It was an active command. This wasn't just something they needed to keep in their back pocket. This is something they needed to do right then and there. I want to show you this um, in Ezekiel chapter 20. So this is not Exodus. This is Ezekiel chapter 20. It just happens to both be uh, chapter 20s. Verses 7 and 8, God's recounting what happened with uh, Israel here in this time. <clears throat> and God said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt, that is the false gods of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they, Israel, rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols, the false gods of Egypt. 
So, so when God says, have no other gods before me, he again is giving a, an active command. You guys were in Egypt for 400 years. And during that time, you adopted Egypt's gods, but you are not in Egypt anymore. I have brought you out of Egypt. I have rescued you. I have saved you. And what you need to do now, Israel, is leave those old things behind. Don't bow down and worship those gods. And by the way, the idols, they, they, they stood for things. They stood for prosperity and fertility and, and all these things. Like So while they really did have a carved image, they were really worshiping material possessions. They were worshiping pleasure. They were worshiping prosperity and fertility. That's what they were worshiping. And God is saying, no, leave those things behind. Don't worship what the Egyptians worship. I have come to you. I have saved you. You are no longer with them. Leave those gods behind. I mean, this, this is active. And, and it's the sad uh, statement there in Ezekiel that none of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. I, I don't want to get too dramatic here, but it's interesting that this group that God speaks to at Sinai, how many of them will make it into the promised land? Two. <laughs> uh, you got Joshua and Caleb, right? Uh, like every other one of them will not make it. I'm not saying they don't make it to heaven. I, I, Moses will be in heaven. I can guarantee you that. But even Moses uh, will in, in his own way rebel against God. But we see that the Israelite people refuse to leave behind their old gods. Now, I want us to, again, understand the way we do this. Uh, I, I, I'm not trying to be condemning here. I'm trying to be realistic. That while we don't likely bow down to idols of wood or stone or gold or anything like that, we bow down to our own idols. I was thinking about this. We, we may not bow down to the sun god, which was one of their major deities, the sun god, but we bow down to our sons and daughters. We, we put even our families, a good thing. The son's a good thing, right? But it's not a good thing to bow down to and worship. Your sons and daughters, children, they're a good thing, but they're not a good thing to bow down and worship to, uh, to, to worship rather. We may not bow down to the fertility God, but we feast our eyes on all sort of immodest images and in just this sexualized way the culture is, and we, we, we dive into that, these old Egyptian ways, if you will, say, ah, a little of this, a little of that. We bow down to these things. We may not bow down to a God of, of a, a bountiful harvest of crops, but we, we bow down to that big bank account. You know how I know that? We, we pursue money, we pursue uh, these material possessions, and we, we, we are willing to do whatever it takes to get those things. We're willing to sin, we're willing to hurt other people, we're willing to uh, neglect God, we're willing to neglect so many other things to pursue these lesser gods. And, and, and I got to be honest, uh, I, I've, I've barely scratched the surface, like I've kind of just hit like the token idols it's so interesting when I think about the human heart, my human heart, by the way, how, how capable I am of making an idol out of pretty much anything. 
Think about this. This may be you, and the, or there's, you can think about others if that <laughs> feels better to you. Some people bow down to the pleasure of food. Others bow down to the vanity of physique. They make idols out of either this, the food that they eat or of, no, I'm not going to eat because I want to look good. Some search for satisfaction in adrenaline. Others bow down to safety. I'm telling you, both can be a big problem when, when, you, when you're, by the way, I fall into that first category and it has caused some trouble to bow down to the, the God of adrenaline. Uh, but I also know people that they bow down way too much to that God of safety. I'm not going to talk about Jesus. They may make, make, make fun of me, might make my job difficult, might make you know, my, my neighbor uh, uncomfortable, and so I'm not going to do it. We have uh, things like putting our attention on fitting in. I, I, I want to dress like everyone else. I want to be like everyone else. I want to be like everyone else. That's some people, but others bow down to being different and unique. Like, you, do you see what I'm saying here? Like, there is no limit to what we can bow down to in worship in our lives. And again, I'm just scratching the surface. John Calvin most famously put it this way. He says, quote, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Yup. <laughs> Anything that comes into my life, I have this potential to to put it higher than God or try to have it cohabit the throne of God. And I do that by giving it my attention. I do that by giving it my affections. I do that by pursuing my peace, my joy, my hope, my satisfaction in those things rather than in God. And this is why we sin. If, if we didn't have false gods, if we did not bow down to things that are not God, we would not sin, never once. I, I want to talk about that right now. Because um, you, you think about this, okay, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We can make a sin out of this and that, the, the opposite extremes and everything in between. What do we do? What do we do? I want to give you the antidote to replacing God. The antidote to replacing God is to know God as he truly is. The antidote to replacing God is to know God as he truly is. By the way, I'm always tempted to take it back to the Garden of Eden. Because in chapter 3, you can see these things. Adam and Eve, uh, they did not just take fruit. That was not the sin. The sin was they bowed down to themselves you will be like God, Satan said. And it's interesting, the thing that led them to do that, to, to, to say, I, I want to raise myself up, was uh, Satan kind of said, well, the reason God doesn't want you to eat of that tree is that he knows you'll be like him. God is holding out on you. And so the way that Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin was by casting suspicion on God on his goodness, on his character, on his glory. And so Satan says, ah, God's not all that glorious, but you could be, and boom, they dive in, they bow down in the fall and everything else since then has occurred because of that. And so the antidote to replacing God in our hearts is to know God as he truly is. And I think we see this even in the introduction to the 10 commandments. 
right? Verses one and two. I haven't given a whole lot of attention to these yet, but here, here's what God says. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The very next verse is, have no other gods before me. So God is founding, basing the command to have no other gods before him in who he is. I am the Lord your God. So anytime you see that all caps Lord in your Bible, they're kind of minimized all caps, the O-R-D, what does that stand for in the Hebrew? Yell it out. Yahweh. That is Yahweh. In chapter 3 of Exodus, the same book that we're studying, God explained, or at least gave a glimpse of what it means for him to be Yahweh. And this is why it matters that he is basing the command not to replace him with who he is. Exodus chapter 3, I'm not going to go into this exhaustively at all, but I'll just give you a flavor there. Exodus chapter 3 Uh, In verse 5, God teaches that for God to be Yahweh means that he is absolutely holy. In verses 15 to 17, uh, it means that he is absolutely trustworthy and promise-keeping. In verses 16 and 17, uh, him to be Yahweh means that he is the sovereign lawgiver and judge of the universe. In verses 19 and 20, we see that Yahweh is infinitely and supremely powerful. In verses 21 and 22, we see that God is able to influence and alter the minds of people to make them do what they would not otherwise do. And, and, and so I'm, I'm gonna got one more statement on, on what Yahweh means, but I just wanna say, this is, this is an incredible God. This is, he, he, he's holy, he's the lawgiver, he's supremely powerful, he can change minds. How can he do all that? Well, he explained it in verse 14 of chapter three. He says, I am who I am. This is what it means for me to be Yahweh. I am who I am. And again, I, I don't wanna undersell this with a, a short summary, but that's uh, all we've got time for. What it means for God to be I am who I am is that he is absolute existence. He is utterly above and beyond, superior to all of creation. And and for God to be absolute existence means that he has always existed eternally. He was entirely self-sufficient, self-sustaining, self-satisfying before he ever created anything else. And he is the one who created all else that exists. He is the source, the purpose, and the satisfaction of all that exists. And so what that means is everything that exists, everything that exists, these things we bow down to, these things we we worship, everything that exists, exists because of God. It exists for God And the only place, because God is above and supreme over, transcendent over creation, the only place we will find satisfaction is in him because he is supremely glorious above all of creation. And so what I want you to understand here is for God to say, I'm the Lord, your God, have no other gods before me. By tying those two things together is he's he's saying, It is irrational and foolish to have any other gods when you have me, right? 
uh, can, can you do next slide there, Douglas? He, he said there, <clears throat> I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so what he's saying is, I'm Yahweh, I am absolute existence, I'm holy, I'm supreme, I'm powerful, I'm infinite in all of my glorious perfections, and I have brought you to myself. I have redeemed you out of this sinful separation there your slave, in your slavery in Egypt. I have brought you to myself. And so it would be absolutely foolish to put any other gods before me. It's irrational when you have the greatest thing and to say, no, I, I, I want this lesser thing. This is what we have. And by the way, you think about this in the New Testament God has made a way for you and for me to know Yahweh God. And he has done that through the purchase of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, his resurrection, through those things, God has given us access to Yahweh, to absolute existence, to, to the most glorious being, the most satisfying being and more. And yet we turn to other gods. We turn to money, pleasure, possessions, prestige. I want to have the higher position at work. I want people to think well of me and we're willing to sin to do it. And it is dumb. <laughs> I, just, I don't know how else to say it. I am Yahweh. Have no other gods before me. I call it dumb, by the way. Put a mirror here because I'm talking to myself too. This is the essence of the first commandment. Do not replace God and the antidote is to know God truly as he really is because if you see God as he really is if you believe God is who he really says he is then you won't even want lesser gods the things of this world will grow strangely dim is, is how one hymn puts it when you see his glory when you see his, his infinite perfections when you see that he has given you himself you won't want all these other things. And so the antidote is to meditate on, to focus on who God is. Now, there, there's an interesting thing here. It's like, okay, meditate on who God is. For Israel, <laughs> what that meant for them was, okay, so then we'll make an image of God and bow down and worship it. That's what they do in, in uh, Exodus 32. We'll get there in a second. And what we're going to see is that in the first commandment and the second commandment, there is an intimate connection. And I'm really excited to show it to you. Uh, between the first and second commandment, there's just this, this great connection that has been so helpful for me uh, this week in my understanding of, of what it looks like to glorify God and pursue my satisfaction in Him. So let's, let's look at the second command. The second command of the Ten Commandments says this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or, is, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Okay, so now we have to ask, I know the answer's on the screen, but work with me here. Is that saying don't make carved images of false gods? I mean, the first commandment was have no other gods before me. Wouldn't it be weird if God says, and also don't have any gods before me in carved image form? 
that, that, that would just be redundant. The first and second command would be the same thing. If the second commandment is about bowing down to false gods, then the first and second commandment are the exact same thing. And I would say that is unlikely <laughs> at best. Certainly we should not make idols and bow down to them false gods. But what we actually see happening here is God isn't saying, don't replace me again, like he said in the first commandment. He is actually saying, number two, do not reduce me. Do not reduce God to a lesser image. And this is what he's talking about is what God is saying is, so I am Yahweh. I am absolute existence. Don't you dare make an idol, a physical idol, and bow down to that instead of to me. Don't, don't, don't act like you can contain me in some form. By the way, form is an interesting thing to say of God. Because at this point, the incarnation has not happened. And God is spirit, right? He is all, all, all places at all times. He's omnipresent. Uh, and so, like, what is it even to put God into a form? Now, you could say, well, this is just a prohibition against art. And people, by the way, have taken it that way. Uh, you, you can't make it, uh, any carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath. Okay, so no images whatsoever. Do you, why do we know that that's not true? What's later going to come uh, in the book of Exodus? The tabernacle, which is going to be filled to the brim with images. There's going to be pomegranates and olive uh tree and, and then then in the holy of holies you're going to have cherubim these are heavenly beings that god literally says make them out of gold <laughs> these huge heavenly beings and so it would be odd if god says don't you make any artistic representation of anything but hey make this artistic representation of all these things and then put them in my holy temple uh, uh, tabernacle rather and that's not what god is prohibiting what god is prohibiting is reducing him I want to show you that, by the way, from uh, Exodus 32. <clears throat> this is going to happen later after they receive the Ten Commandments and they say, we will obey all that you have spoken. Uh, then Moses will go back up to the mountain. While they are gone, this is what happens. Exodus 32, 7 and 8. The Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, I'm, I still don't understand that these are your gods, plural. There's only one golden calf and Yahweh is only one God. But anyways, it is clear that the golden calf is a representation of Yahweh because they say, This is the God who brought you out of Egypt? They aren't erecting for themselves some new God. They are trying to make a representation of God. And what do they make of Yahweh, absolute existence, supreme power, infinite glory? What do they make of him? A calf, a baby cow, adolescent cow. <laughs> I mean, even, even just in my mind, that seems so disrespectful. And I think it is that way to teach us a, a lesson. It's kind of an extreme example of 
This is what happens when you try to make an image out of me. You inherently, inevitably minimize me. You reduce me. But Israel wanted a manageable God. The Israelites. And so they said, make Aaron, make for us an image that we may worship it. They wanted a manageable God. They wanted a God they could easily manipulate. They wanted a God, quite honestly, of their own imaginations. The problem there should be pretty clear. They do bow down and worship it. Then after that, they rise up to play, uh, which is a a sexual innuendo, by the way. So they they bow down to this image of Yahweh, quote unquote. Then they go commit a horrible sin. And and I'm going to tell you, God is absolutely furious with them. A lot of people are about to die down there. God will tell them, rise up against those who are worshiping, and the Levites will slay uh, many people until God's uh, anger is is, is, uh, appeased in that. And it was all to show what you've done here was a horrific sin. And what they did was not break the first commandment, but the second commandment. Don't make a carved image of me. Don't make of me any likeness of anything that is in heaven or earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Don't, don't turn the creator into a piece of creation. It's ridiculous and it reduces God. Now I want to show you the connection here. The, the first commandment is saying, don't replace God let, let God sit on the throne of your heart, of your affections, of your attention, of your actions. Let God be there as he ought to be. The second command is saying, don't reduce God. And, and so the antidote to replacing God was know God for who he really is. The second one is saying, then don't reduce him down to a manageable, manipulatable size. Because here is what happens, and here's what I see as the connection between the first and second commandments. Um, I think I have a a slide for this. When we reduce God, we are tempted to replace him. It is only when we bring God down to a, a familiar, manageable size that we then say, hmm, he's not all that great. He's not all that glorious. He's not all that satisfying. I'm going to turn to other things that are great and glorious and satisfying. Because if we saw God as as Yahweh, as he truly is, we would not turn to idols. We would not turn to other gods in our lives. And what happens is when we reduce God down to that nice manageable size, that familiar size, is he he, he no longer, number one, are we actually worshiping Yahweh? We're worshiping a, a figment of our imagination. But number two, he's no longer worthy of our worship. We can no longer trust him. We, can, we no longer desire to obey him from a glad heart. We no longer believe that he can satisfy because he's not good enough. And so we turn to other lesser things. Because remember, it would be irrational. It would be absolutely foolish to turn to lesser things if we truly know who God is. And so that's what happens in our minds. By the way, you can see this. Um, in, in Romans 1, it says they suppress the truth about God. So that's, that's what it is. They suppress, they, 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 they deny that God is as glorious as he really is. And when we do that, we exchange God for other 
God. You can read it in Romans 1 that this is what we see here. And this is the connection I see between the first and second commandments. Now you say, okay, cool. I'm good. I haven't made any images of God lately. <laughs> um, ah, but seriously, what about our imaginations? I, I, I don't want to like overstretch this second commandment, but we, we just simply don't function in the same way as they did 3,500 years ago. Like idols just aren't a part of our culture. They aren't uh, an aspect of our worship typically uh, for most of us, but we still have our imagination. Rather than making an image, we still have our imagination. And I just wanna give you a few examples um, from my own life. I think uh, growing up, I, I imagined God to be just this angry deity up there. That, that God the Father was, was mad and ready to, to just wipe out all of us, but then Jesus taps him on the shoulder and is like, God, let's just be nice to them. And so he sends Jesus and he dies for our sin, but God, oh, whatever, I'll let him. That, that was like the conception that I had of God. You show me where I got that from the Bible. <laughs> I didn't, that was from my own imagination, but that is how I treated God. I treated him as, as an angry person whom Jesus had just sort of snuck me in the back door, you know, uh, into heaven. Now that was at one point in my life, but later in my life, I saw God as, as not necessarily angry, but very permissive. He's so gracious that he doesn't care whether or not we obey him. And so I thought, you know, God just kind of winks at our sin. Hey, you really shouldn't do that. <laughs> you know, and, but we go on doing it anyways. But, oh, well, Jesus has covered our sin, so it's all good. And I, I kind of like that's how I imagined God as just this kind of weakling up in the sky. Or, I don't know. And, and um, I just want to make this plain. I did not worship God very much when I thought of God in those ways. <laughs> My heart was not inclined toward awe of God. And my heart really wasn't inclined towards joyful obedience to him. And my heart was not inclined to seek my satisfaction in him because I had a reduced version of God in my mind. I made it from my own imagination what I thought God was like. In some way, it was just simpler. It was just familiar. And maybe this has happened for you, by the way. Like maybe Maybe you had a, a father who, who, who wasn't uh, there for you. He was a jerk. And now you think of God the Father in the same way. Or, or maybe growing up, you were disciplined harshly and unlovingly. And so you assume God is, is the same discompassionate discom uh, person towards you. Or maybe you grew up without discipline. And so you assume God is just lenient and doesn't care. Uh, he's like, his rules aren't that big of a deal. His glory isn't that bad to offend. And I mean, maybe you have these conceptions of God, but I want to tell you, they, they will not lead you to worship. They will not lead you to obedience and they will not lead you to joy. They will lead you to replace God if you reduce God. So we do not try to bring God down to a manageable size. We want to know God, see God, as he truly is. <clears throat> but how do we see God if we can't have images of God? And if, you know, maybe I won't make a calf, a, a little gentle uh, baby cow. I'll make a strong bull. No, no, God says, no, don't make these images. 
infinitely greater than all of these things. Don't do that. So how do I see God then? How do I see God as he truly is so that I won't reduce him and I won't want to replace him? This is number three. Do not reject God's plan. God has a plan for his image. God has a plan for your imagination, for your conception of him. And we should not try to circumvent God's plan by making our own images or just thinking up in our own imaginations what God might be like. We should not bow down to our own uh, imaginary God because God has a plan for how he wants to reveal himself. And so the first part of that plan is this, a plan to shape our image of God, his word. God wants to shape your image, your imagination, your thoughts about God through his word. I, I, I try not to uh, be a, uh, a Christian snob, you know, um, like a, a theological snob or anything like that. But it is very difficult for me if I'm sitting in, in, in a group of, of people or whatever and we're talking about God, we're talking about religion, and all that we're hearing is ideas and philosophy of you know, well, I think this, I, well, I think that, you know, what would be cool as if, like, I, I honestly, in those moments, I just get frustrated because I'm like, show me, like, where God is that way, not, not, I think God is this way. And people say it with such confidence sometimes, this is how God is. And I'm just like, but that's not what the Bible says about him, you know, or, or that's an imbalanced uh, uh, view of God. God has, I mean, I'm, I'm not like trying to, to make this a sermon point, but God really has shaped this world and revealed himself in such a way that we learn about him through his word. Now, sometimes that was his spoken word, like to Moses. This is what it means for me to be Yahweh. Um, but for us, we have his written word. And just think about this. Our, our, our imaginations are so prone to fault and to failure, misrepresenting God, but scripture is infallible. It is God's own spirit-guided revelation of himself. And so uh, in scripture, we see uh, just descriptions of who God is. It's a self-revelation. This is what I am like. Not only do we hear like descriptions of his attributes and things like that, uh, but we also have example after example of what God is like. In the Bible, we see God's attributes and, and even in some ways his essence put on display. We see his glory. We see uh, his power. We see his grace. We see his justice and wisdom and everything else in the Bible. And then God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only father of the son. Only son of the father. Anyways. Jesus is our supreme example of what God is like because he is God. I want to I show you this. In John chapter 14, uh, Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. So he's saying, I, I want to know what God the Father is like. I, I want to see him. Lord, show us the Father. Jesus said to them, said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not, do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
Colossians 1.15 makes it even more explicit. He is the image of the invisible God. Now note the words here. Do not make any carved image is what the second commandment is. And now we see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So if you want to know what God is like, read your Bible and pay special attention to what Jesus is like. His attitudes, his actions, because that is an image of God. And it is in seeing God as he truly is, as portrayed in his word, that we are brought to awe and worship and glad obedience and finding our satisfaction in him. He is no longer reduced. He is magnified. He is uh, shown to be as big as he really is in God's word. Something our imagination, something our images can never do. The Bible does. It shows us what God is truly like without any admixture of error. This is what the Bible does. It is God's plan to help us not reduce him or replace him. We see God in his word. Now, there is a second half to this point, though. God's plan for this image. <clears throat> and so this is a plan for God's image on the earth. So God said, don't make any images, mere humans. Don't, don't make images. But God does, in fact, have a plan for his image on this earth. And it's us. God's plan for his image to be on this earth is us. Now that may sound sacrilegious and it would be if it weren't exactly what the Bible teaches. You think about it, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. These, by the way, are using the same words, uh, image and likeness. That's what we see in uh, the second commandment. Don't make any image or, or any likeness. Then God said, Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God put us, his image bearers, on this earth to be reflections and pointers to his glory, to what he is like. This is what we were supposed to be. Now, the fall did happen, and it obscures the view of God. The view of God is distorted. I, I want to say that uh, in the fall, when we, when, when we fell into sin, humanity, the image of God was marred, but it was not removed. And so every single human bears the image of God, this distinct honor of being an image bearer of God. But... Our sin, our unholiness, distorts that image of God. It obscures the view of God that would otherwise be seen in us. And this is God's plan for his image. This has happened in that creation week. Let us make man in our image. So what are we to do? Well, I would say first, I just need to say this again. First, we, we trust in Jesus and he makes us a new creation. <laughs> 
capable of, of uh, restoring this, this image of God and undistorting it. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And that's part of what it means is we have this new capacity to pursue reflecting God once again. But up there on the screen, you see 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you get what's going on there? This is tying together all these points. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, The way that we become what we are supposed to be, reflectors of God's image here on this earth, reflectors of God's glory here on this earth, is by beholding the glory of the Lord. We need to know God as He truly is, meditate on God as He truly is, put our attention and affections on God because of who He is, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. That's that same word, that image. Don't make any images. No, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is what we're talking about when we say Christ-likeness, <laughs> being like Christ. Well, Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so, yes, as we behold the glory of God, we become this image of God on the earth. We've always borne the honor, the dignity of being made in God's image, but through beholding his glory, we become those who reflect his glory in this earth. Friends, I, I just I just gotta tell you, like this is it's not elementary. I, I get it, like these are deep thoughts, but this is this is just the, the base, this is the foundation of, of who we are and what we are to be doing. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, I, I, I'm a sinner I, and we've been saved by grace. Yes, that is great. But there, there's this transformation process that needs to continue in our lives. And, and we don't just pursue it by, okay, I'm gonna obey, I'm gonna obey. No, no. Yeah, we, we, we pursue obedience, but the way we pursue obedience is by beholding the glory of God. And, and you know, I hate to, to bring it down to something, again, so elementary, but the way we become more like God, the way we reflect His image on this earth is by His Word. This is why this should not sit on our nightstand until next Sunday. This is why our faces should be in this and not only just scanning it because we're supposed to, but searching for the glory of God in it. And I promise you, it's not hard to find the glory of God in it. And it protects our imagination, our image of God from reducing him down to pygmy proportions that isn't worthy of our worship, obedience, or satisfaction. We will spend eternity seeing all of who God is. And I say eternity because he's infinite in his glories. Therefore, it will take an infinite amount of time to exhaust all of his glories, which is forever. So we will never exhaust learning more and seeing more of God's glory. But for this time right here on earth, we, we have this treasure. Are you, are you neglecting it? <laughs> are you neglecting it for TV? What a lame exchange. I'm not anti-TV. Are you neglecting it for going and hanging out with friends? 
I'm not, I'm not anti hanging out with friends. Guys, we have this treasure to help us see who God really is so that the rest of our lives can be aligned with Yahweh, our creator, our sustainer, our savior. This is what I want to be about. I want to be a person who knows God as he truly is and then reflects God as he truly is because I want the world to know him. I want my heart to worship him, but then I, I, want, I want the world to know him as well. And this is, this is my desire for all of us. This is God's desire for all of us. Do not replace God and do not reduce him. And he has given us a way to keep that from happening through his word. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you right now for these commands. Our flesh doesn't like commands, but our spirit here knows this is a very good thing to have these commands that we not replace you with lesser, unglorious, unsatisfying gods. You alone are the God of glory, so we thank you for that command. And we thank you also for the command not to reduce you, to make images of you from, from our own imaginations, but to let you speak for yourself, to let you shape what we think about you through your word. Because anything from our imaginations, no matter how, how grand or creative, doesn't come close. It doesn't come close to who you are, your greatness, your glory, your supremacy, and your ability to satisfy our longing hearts. Lord, may these simple principles truly influence what we do when we, when we leave this place today. That we would have a longing to be informed by your word and transformed by your word. Because it is so precious, it is such a great gift to behold your glory. And it is such an honor to be transformed into the image of your glory. And Lord, we pray that you would do this not just for ourselves, not just for our own joy and our own satisfaction in you, but for your glory in the hearts and minds of, of those all around us who don't yet know you who don't yet recognize that you have made a way out of Egypt, that you have made a way out of sin and death through Christ Jesus, your son. God, would we be the people who reflect your glory so that they would come to look for that glory in Christ Jesus and to find that salvation. And Lord, it's just such a beautiful plan. Help us not to reject it. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.
Again, so good to come to God's word, underneath God's word, to be informed by God's word with you all and to pursue these things together. So many of you are an encouragement to me to to pursue these things, to pursue God alone. And and I hope I can be that for you as well. And uh, I also want to remind you, we we do have our fellowship uh, lunch next Sunday. We have our fellowship lunch next Sunday, and we have the meeting in the evening, but we're still going to have that fellowship lunch. And our thinking there is that, that it's only members that are allowed to come to the evening meeting. And we want, we want visitors and non-members to be able to, to fellowship with us and enjoy that time. So we will still have that, that lunch next Sunday. And so I hope you'll, you'll come back and uh, pursue God being on that throne of our hearts uh, with us again next week. Uh, let's pray and have God send us out. Father, you are so good, you are so patient, you are so kind, you are so merciful. Even in your justice, your mercy is shown because your justice was poured out on Jesus for all those who trust in him. So Lord, we thank you that we can pursue having you as God alone in our hearts, knowing that, that we, are, we stand secure in you, in Christ Jesus. Lord, let us have that peace as we pursue you. And God, may that may this pursuit just affect the world around us, God. We don't want to be a street side Bible study. We want to be a light upon a hill. So God, use us, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. I love you all and have a wonderful week.